0: back and you look up, and I couldn't believe it. There's actually only two passages in the Old Testament that mention her by name. Most of the time, the references are just to the woman. And then in the New Testament, she gets two passages, again mentioning her, and both of them have to do with being deceived. Now, usually Adam's thrown in that context, too, so we recognize this is about all of humanity. But this morning, we want to go back to the very beginning and remind ourselves that, yes, she was deceived. Yes, Adam was deceived. But there was also this incredible promise of hope given to Eve, that she would, in fact, be the bearer of hope, that this first promise came even before the curse was uttered upon humanity. And the second word we have to just take a minute is to talk about that idea of hope. Because as Christmas season approaches, we as American, especially we as consumers, tend to think about hope from the lens of what we want, what we wish would happen, right? Every kid has a list of their hopes for Christmas, a.k.a. the presents and the toys they hope are underneath the tree on Christmas morning, right? But we recognize as followers of Jesus that hope is so much more than just wishful thinking. It's so much more than just optimism. It is something deeply rooted in the character and the promises of God. It is certain because it has a certain foundation. And so today we're going to look at Eve's hope, this hope that is given in the midst of judgment and despair, a hope that can light not only our Advent season, but all of our lives if we would allow it to. Now, before we get to Eve's hope, and what we're going to do is fast forward and just spend time this morning looking at Genesis 3.15, right? We don't have time to unpack everything, but we do want to properly set the stage here for a moment. So in the beginning, God has always been in perfect relationship with himself, and in the fullness of time, he begins to create, and what happens as God reflects on each day? It was good. Culminating in the sixth day where God makes man and woman male and female in his image And at the end of the sixth day, what does he declare? It was very good One chapter in the bible of very goodness And then we get to chapter two and we encounter the first thing that is not good even before the fall Adam is alone And so God says I will make a helper suitable for him Now, we just have to hit pause again, one of those moments, because I have seen so many people take that role of helper and spin it and use it in ungodly ways. And so what I want to do is just one brief side here real quick to remind us that the term helper, the role of helper in Scripture, is one worthy of praise and of honor. It is, in fact, a word that is used more to describe God than anyone else. If you want a powerful study, go through the book of Psalms. At least as far as I could tell, I didn't take a whole lot of time, but my Bible software said every single reference to someone as helper with this same word in the book of Psalms is to God. Think of all the prayers that are uttered, of all the praises that are uttered to a helper. To a helpmate, as our King James used to like to say, this is a word and a role that is not second class. It is not a role that is to be misused. It is one of high and incredible honor. And that is why God bestows it. And God institutes marriage and life seems to be going along well. Genesis chapter 3 opens, and we encounter the serpent. This talking snake that seems just a little bit out of place. And as we take the vantage of all of scripture, we recognize this is the one the Pharisees called Beelzebub, the prince of demons. This is the one Jesus refers to as the evil one, the Satan, the devil. Paul will reference him as the power of the prince of this air and the ruler of this age. Revelation 12 9 puts it this way, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is the evil one, the great deceiver, and he comes to Eve and to Adam and he deceives with lies. Did God surely say, No, God is holding out on you. If you eat, you will be like him and know good from evil. This is always the way way of Satan's attack, to impinge the character of God. He is holding out on you. Eve and Adam eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are opened and sin, like a giant avalanche, enters the world. This giant, unstoppable snowball of sin and death and destruction and depravity enters creation and ruins God's beautiful design. So Adam and Eve understandably hide as God comes into the garden. And then, as humanity has always seemed so good at, we pass the buck. God asks Adam. Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. And Eve says, it was the snake. And I love how God doesn't ask the snake, right? He just turns around and he curses the snake. He knows the serpent. He knows what he has already done. And so we come to this moment of curse. And tucked into the curse of the serpent is the first promise. Theologians love to call this the first gospel. It is all about this incredible glimpse of hope. And so as we read Genesis 3.15, the first principle we want to see today is this. Eve's hope emanates from God's initiative. It emanates from God's initiative. Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I will. Two simple words that show God's promise of initiative. God's promise of the gospel. Think about it for a moment. God takes the initiative despite the the fact that Adam and Eve hid. They didn't turn to him. They did not confess in humility. Right? They don't deserve it. They've done nothing to reach out towards God. They have ruined his beautiful creation. And yet, what does God do? He takes the initiative and the other piece here i absolutely am just mind-boggled at is that what does god do he issues this promise before he issues the curse upon adam and upon eve before the curse is uttered upon them there is a promise that has already been made god utters forth in the initiative of what he will plan to do and we recognize from the New Testament, it didn't just start in Genesis 3. It was back in God's plan and heart beat before the foundations of the world. And let this sink into, there is no hope for the serpent, for the third of the host of heaven who rebelled. But yet, God in his initiative and profound grace chooses to make a way to save us. And we think about that initiative, and what do we see? That is the heartbeat of salvation history. It's God who comes into the garden and finds them when they're hiding. It doesn't take long for humanity to reach the pinnacle of Genesis 6, where God says, I am sorry that I have created humanity, and I'm going to wipe them from the face of the earth. Yet, who is it who shuts the lifeboat of the ark, saving humanity? It's God after humanity reaches in its depravity up to the heavens, literally in the Tower of Babel, and they are scattered. Who is it who begins again with a promise to one man through whom all the nations of the world will be built? To Abraham. It is God. It's God who raises up Joseph, walking through him through the pitfalls of life to the second of all Egypt to save his people from famine. It is God who raises up Moses and has to convince Moses to go to Pharaoh to free his people. It's God at Mount Sinai who initiates a covenant with God's people to have a way to atone for their sin. It is him who initiates and gives them the blessing of the law and the sacrificial system. As people falter and fail again and again. It is God who raises up prophet after prophet after prophet, major and minor, prophet, 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 right, to call his people back. Even when he scatters them in the exile, what does God do? He says, I will preserve a remnant. I will bring them back. And then we get to the opening of the New Testament and God himself steps out of eternity to be born in humanity. To come to save us. He goes to a cross. Dying not for his sins. But for the sins of the world. He comes in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit. To come and what reside in his people. It is God who one day promises to what? Defeat evil merely by showing up in his return. To recraft a new heavens and a new earth. Because we ruined the first one. And finally what does God promise to do? I will wipe away every tear. That is the initiative of god Again and again and again and we see it here for the first part Heard one person describe it this way This is an acorn right contained within it is everything To make a mighty oak tree Here we have the acorn of the gospel The promise of god's initiative of his good news god's initiative Is what births our hope. So what is the call? It's to believe the gospel. To recognize what? Adam and Eve couldn't do anything to fix their situation. So if you're here this morning, and you've come to the conclusion that I can't, whatever it is, in regards to your sin or whatever you're facing, take great heart and realize God can. And in fact, God already has. That's the beauty of living on the other side of not only Christmas, but the beauty of living on the other side of Easter is we've seen what God has already done. This is what sets Christianity apart from religion. It is not about you and what you do. It is about what God in his initiative took upon himself and has done. And our only response is faith. On the great day of judgment, when the book of the law is opened and my mouth is silenced by all of my sin, all I can do is what? I trust Jesus. I believe that what he has done is enough. I believe that his name will save me. I believe that the Father, when he looks at me, will not see my record because I have no hope of it. Is my record but sees his. And we recognize that believing the gospel is only the beginning. It becomes a lifetime of living the gospel because so often what Christian circles do is they say, yes, you need to be saved by faith. It's all grace. You cannot save yourself. But now that that's done, let's talk about everything you need to do, right? Now, we have to be absolutely clear. The New Testament, and Paul in particular, will say it's going to take a lot of effort, excruciating effort, and work. it's going to take, in fact, everything you have. But guess what? It's still not all about you. It's about what God has done. It's about staying close to Jesus. That's the purpose of the disciplines, isn't to earn a favor with God now that God likes me because of Jesus. No, it's to put me in a position to receive more and more of the grace of Jesus. So this first incredible promise, this first incredible glimpse of hope we see is that it emanates from God's initiative. And we hear the call in response to believe and live out the gospel. As we continue in verse 15, it says, I will put, what, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity, right? There are those who want to say, well, this is nothing more than just one of those myths to explain why people don't like snakes, right? And all the people who grow up with Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones go, snakes? Why does it always have to be snakes? Right? No, this is a powerful word. This is a word which is used later to be translated as the Avengers of Blood. This is the language of a blood feud. This is why there had to be Levitical cities of refuge. This is a place you could go and flee because there is a blood feud. Someone is coming for your life. There is going to be enmity. And we have to recognize the hidden picture of grace even here. Because what is Satan's mind at this point? If he's anything like me, he's thinking, I got him. I have turned Adam and Eve against you, God, just like I turned a third of the host of heaven. They're with me now, not you. And what does God proclaim? No, 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 no. I will put enmity, I will put blood feud between you. I will create such a transformation of their hearts that they will reject you and they will come back to me. We recognize there are those hints in the Old Testament. What is that going to require? The taking of a heart of stone being transformed into a heart of flesh, a new covenant, something more and greater. But again, here is hidden the incredible picture of what God is going to do. And we hear the language here of offspring. This incredible picture. There's going to be this continued enmity. There's going to be ongoing conflict. And where do we find that hope hidden in there? Hope endures through what seemingly endless conflict. There seems to be this endless conflict throughout the scriptures. There are these risings and these fallings. Finally, there is hope. We're going to have this promised redeemer. Nope, he fails in conflict. Again and again, the rising and the falling of hope. This enduring picture of hope despite the endless conflict. We could go all the way back to Genesis 4. What does Adam and Eve name their first child, Cain. Why? It's a word that gives us this picture of the Lord has given me a man, <laughs> an offspring. The Lord has fulfilled his promise. Here it is. Oh, except Cain's offering is not accepted. But Abel's is. Oh, wait, Cain kills Abel. <laughs> right? We, we see this building throughout the Old Testament. There's a man, despite all the wickedness, and he finds favor with God. Certainly a man who has enough faith to build an ark and take 120 years to do it. Certainly this will be the... Nope. He ends in despair. Great promise made to Abraham. Nope. It will only come through his line. Joseph. It's got to be Joseph. No. The promise is made to the line of Judah. Okay. It'll come, right? We keep going. Moses, he dies on the what? The outside of the promised land looking in. Samuel. Oh, after the period of the judges, Samuel, what a blessing he is. Oh, except he can't win the heart of King Saul, nor the heart of his own sons. Right? But David, a man after God's own heart. And there's this incredible picture we get of this ongoing struggle. When we look at the language used to describe Goliath, what is his armor described as? Scaly. There's a fourfold repetition in Hebrew of the word bronze, which has the same root as the word snake. So in the language, it gives us this incredible picture. The authors want us to recognize there is this archetype. This is a battle not just between David and Goliath, but between the promises of God and the heirs of Satan. And what? He's struck in the head, and his head's being taken off. He lands in the dust. What? This has got to be the man who's going to bring about the fulfillment of all God's promises. Oh, No. He shows that he cannot overcome the temptations. He falters and he fails. But yet God, in his initiative and faithfulness, promises what? You will have an heir who will sit on the throne forever. Oh, so many glimpses we could get through the book of Kings. Just one of my favorite, Second Kings 11, the story of Athaliah and Jehoash, or Joash, depending on which, which version you're using, right? The one queen to sit on the throne of Judah. What does she do? Depending on the estimates, roughly 70 heirs. She tries to eliminate everybody else from the line of David. Everybody else who could sit on the throne, she has murdered. But somebody hides Joash in a closet and then hides him for six years. And then at the age of seven, he becomes king. And oh, the glimpses at the beginning of his reign, the repairing of the temple, there are so many good things. Certainly it will be him. Nope. He falls away at the end. The rising and the falling again and again. The seemingly endless conflict that happens again and again. And what do the prophets tell us? Isaiah declares, one day there will come one whom by his wounds you will be healed. The promise is reuttered again and again and again. And this hope endures despite the seemingly endless conflict. And so we hear what the call, don't despair, instead endure. Because Satan still uses those same things to undermine us in the midst of the seemingly endless conflict. Certainly God is not powerful enough. Certainly God is not good enough to do something about it. Maybe there's no meaning. Maybe there's no God at all. It's all just absurdity. It's all just meaninglessness. God certainly can't be for you. We hear the despair, don't we, in the midst of the seemingly endless conflict? Not only the wars that rage out there in the world, but the battles within our own souls. As we battle addictions, as we battle besetting sins, as we battle the struggles of unforgiveness, whatever our personal struggle is, it's so easy to buy the lie of despair, isn't it? The conflict, it's just going to go on forever and eventually you're going to fail because everybody fails. But yet there's hidden the promise and the hope. That someone did endure to the end. But I want to just take a quick moment and and be honest there that if you're somebody who's in that midst of despair, to recognize, yeah, I don't want to believe the lie, but there are those moments in many of our journeys of faith when it comes hard. And it's in those moments what is so vital that you're not standing alone. I know there's been points in my own faith journey when life was hard and a decade of loss and miscarriages and my brother going to prison and just, you, you look off the edge of the cliff and you see the abyss and the lies of the evil one. Just, it doesn't matter. It's just meaningless. In those moments where you're tempted to just fall in, you need somebody to grab you and shake you and say, what are you thinking? Do you really? No, that's not right. Those are just lies. We need people in our life who know our struggles, who know what we are facing. And in those moments, we also need what? The incredible call of the scriptures. We need to engage with God in the midst of that pain. That's the amazing gift of the book of Psalms. Psalms of lament all over the place. More psalms of lament than other things, right? Why? Because we have to engage with god through that don't despair endure through that the incredible gift what we even have a psalm that doesn't have any hope in it why because there are days where that's where we live that's not the end of the story but that is the story of journey and so we see this hope that eve has it emanates it begins in god's initiative but it must also endure through the seemingly endless conflict of trial after trial, of battle after battle, of failure after failure. But the end of the verse gives us this promise. Eve's hope ensures ultimate victory. Ensuring ultimate victory. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as we're reading through this, there's kind of this weird person shift because we don't expect he and you. We'd kind of expect this future between future, you know, sides, right? It's like, oh, wow, Satan's hanging around a really long time. But yet the promise of he is even greater than we imagine. I love the language of the New Testament of Galatians 4 that talks of what? In the fullness of time, Jesus came born of a woman, right? The fulfillment of this promise. One day there would be one who would come in the fulfillment of this. One day there would be one who would be different. Love the stories in Luke chapter 4. The demons are perfectly comfortable hanging out in the synagogue. They're perfectly fine hanging out with the religious people, but Jesus shows up and they're wait a second. Holy one of Israel, have you come to destroy me? There is no contest. Right? That's the incredible picture. After this seemingly endless conflict, it's not just somebody who shows up to champion us who could fail. It's God. Right? We, we there is no comparison. They look and it's like, ooh. Wait a second. This this is not the way it's supposed to look. We we can't beat him. We beat everybody else. Everybody else, we got them down in the end. They had their moments of victory. But there is no hope for darkness because Jesus comes. And we get this picture, what? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I love on the one hand the ESV here because it shows us this is the same word, right? On the flip side, I still have that partiality for, like, the old-school versions of, like, skull crusher, right? Like, there's just something different here, right? But we recognize, like, okay, yeah, a wound to the heel, that can hurt, right? But a blow to the head is absolutely fatal. And it is interesting here, if you go over to the two other references, you know, the BSV, you know, leans in the skull-crushing direction for those, right? But there's that, that tension of, you know, history and translation and all those things that are way above my pay grade. But... We see here what this promise of seeming defeat, right? There is this moment of darkness. And just to give us a, a picture of that, um, Erwin Lutzer tells a story about this painting. i to go ahead and toss that image up on the screen. This is a, a painting which used to hang in the Louvre in Paris, and it was entitled Checkmate. And so the story behind the painting is that there is a man, and he is playing against Satan, and If the man wins, he gets his heart's desires, and if he loses, he loses his soul. And the moment of the painting is when the devil has declared a checkmate in three moves. And the man realizes he has no hope. He has already lost. But as the story goes, one day a chess grandmaster sat having contemplated the Mona Lisa, moved into this room, and he looked at it and he said, actually, there is one move left. If the man moves his king in the proper way, he will win. And in fact, there is no way the devil could counter. The man does not realize it, but there is one move left. But it's only the move of the king, right? Right? That this is what an incredible picture of the story of the cross. The moment, right, of darkness. Love Luke's gospel for the way it it ends, right? Satan enters Judas. Judas goes and betrays him. And what is Jesus' last word in the garden? This is your hour. This is the hour of the power of darkness, right? It seems as if evil has one hanging upon the cross. But yet, in that seeming defeat, victory is, in fact, achieved, and it changes everything. Hebrews 2.14 puts it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he being Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Just in case you didn't know who had the power of death. It's the devil, right? He destroys him. Clean and simple. But I love the language that Paul uses in Colossians two to talk about what the cross accomplishes. Colossians two, fourteen and fifteen says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing. Over them in him. Other translations put it as made a public spectacle. Right? You thought you won. Dun, da, da, da. You didn't. You have been put to outrage public humiliation. This is the triumph of our God over the forces of darkness. There is ultimate victory. It has been ensured for us in the cross. There is no contest between Christ and the forces of darkness. We could go to Revelation 20, and who is it who binds Satan? It's an archangel. It's not even a contest for Jesus to do it. All he has to do up is show up at the end and victory is ensured. Satan is pictured as this serpent with poison dripping from his teeth, but all it takes is one blow of the cross and his head is crushed. He used to have a a unique Christmas tradition. So my grandparents lived in Oregon and They would often fly out for Christmas. And so one of the things that we would do is watch holiday movies and crack walnuts. So my grandparents, back in the day when you could, you know, carry more things, they didn't actually weigh your bags and all this stuff, you know, they would bring out a 50-pound bag of walnuts every year. And we would sit around, and we would crack 50 pounds of walnuts. And the reason you were willing to crack all these walnuts is because they got transformed by grandma and your mom into all kinds of other wonderful food. Now, if you're not a nut person like the rest of my family isn't, you might not appreciate this. But we would crack walnuts. And I got really good at cracking walnuts because when you do it every year for a decade, you get really good at it. But to this day, I am still awed at the fact that my grandpa— okay. He could take a walnut and he could crack it with his bare hand. Now, this was my dream as a little boy. And so I can tell you that, you know, my freshman year in college, you know, like I, I was, you know, playing football, I could bench press 350 pounds. I could not still crack a walnut with my bare hand. And I've given up on trying to do so. Right? Like, I, I, you know, like, I mean, part of it was just from working with his hands his entire life, and part of it was just having a lot of walnuts. I don't know, you know, like, I don't know how he did this, right? Like, maybe he had, like, some genetic abnormality in his hand or something, you know, like, mutant kind of thing going on. Who knows, right? But, like, there's just that sheer and utter power in those moments, especially as a kid. You know, like, you're, you're like, I can put this thing on the ground as a kid and jump on it, and I can't even crack it, right? Like, I can barely crack it with the big old metal things, and yet my grandpa could just go... Here you go, right? It's, it's just that sheer, completely different level. And that's what we want to capture here. That is the picture of the insured victory of what Jesus has already done. Now, we have to recognize and be honest that that is one of those already not yet things, right? So Satan has been defeated. He has been sentenced, but he is also still having influence and power in this world. And so how does all this play out to us? Well, Paul gives us this incredible promise in Romans 12—I'm sorry, Romans 16, verse 20. As he gets towards wrapping up the benediction in Romans, what does he say? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We recognize what? We have been so identified in Christ, Paul can tell us what? We've been buried with him in baptism. We have risen from death with him. We have ascended into the heavenlies. And we, as his church, trample the power and the forces of darkness. What an incredible promise. What an incredible hope that we have. And so we hear those words of encouragement. Ultimate victory has been ensured. Now we also have to be real and recognize what? Sometimes that doesn't come until the next life, right? There is still tragedy. There is still death. There is still incredible hardship and pain and hurt, and we don't want to belittle that. But it's also a different way to live in light of the ultimate victory. We approach suffering. We approach even death differently. Why? Because in Christ I am victorious. In Christ my hope is insured in a way I cannot even imagine. And so as we stand between the Advents, we hear the call to remember Christ's coming, but also to long for his return, for the day of ultimate and profound victory. And maybe we need to be reminded this morning what He who began a good work in you will what He will bring it to fact He will make it happen. We need to be reminded that the end is insured. How is it going to get there? I don't know, right? Smarter people than me, you know, taking guesses—they probably aren't all right because they say different things, right? But how, you know, but it's insured how we're going to get there. And sometimes we need to be reminded of those promises of Romans eight. That if God took the initiative, if God has done all of these things, if he has paid such a tremendous price for us, if he was willing to step out of eternity to be born and laid in a feeding trough, if he was willing to go to a cross, do you really think he's going to let you go? If he did all that, do you really think he's not going to carry it to completion? So hear the word of encouragement, the assured hope that it will happen. And I want to leave us with just one other glimmer of hope from Genesis 3. One of those things that I can't tell you how many times I've read Genesis 3 and taught it in Sunday school and other things. One of those things you've never noticed before. And as I'm talking to people, most of us didn't notice this either. Genesis 3.20 comes after Genesis 3.15. That's not the surprising part, right? We, we, We know that, right? But did you ever realize that this is the fact that Eve doesn't actually get named until after the promise and after the curse. Genesis 3.20 The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Whoa. What an incredible glimmer of hope. Right? Adam, he's probably speaking Far wiser than he knew, right? Lots of people do that in scripture, right? But what an incredible glimpse that this promise will in fact come to pass. There will be profound darkness and hurt and pain, but the glimmer is there for Eve is the bearer of hope. She is this one who has received this incredible promise that one day the Christ child will come. So we recognize what? Hope. It emanates from God's initiative. We believe and live out the gospel. We need the encouragement in the conflict. We need the call to endure. Hope must endure. It cannot be allowed to give in to despair. Why? Ultimate victory has already been ensured. Remember and live in light of The end. And I want to leave us with these incredible words to help drive home the incredible promise. Before the curse, hope is there. Before the despair fully sets in, God already has a plan. If you were with us at our Christmas party, Laura gave us some interesting Christmas carol trivia. Um, if you don't know, ask about it. We'd love to tell you about that. But it was, it was just kind of funny. I'd, I'd come across one of the original versions by John Wesley of, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And understandably, most of the time, there are verses that don't make it into our hymnals or verses that don't make it into our Spotify playlists. But Wesley penned these words, which I thought were appropriate to end today. And it goes like this. Come, desire of nations come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate in us thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. That is Eve's hope, and that is our hope as well. Amen. All right. We're going to invite the people who are going to help us serve communion to come forward today. And while they're doing